I'm Andrea, and I'll be sharing the scripture with you today. It comes from Romans chapter 2, verse 17 to 29. You who call yourselves Jews are relying on God's law, and you boast about your special relationship with him. You know what he wants, you know what is right, because you have been taught his law. You are convinced that you are a guide for the blind and a light for people who are lost in darkness. You think you can instruct the ignorant and teach the children the ways of God, for you are certain that God's law gives you complete knowledge and truth. Well then, if you teach others, why don't you teach yourself? You tell others not to steal, but do you steal? You say it is wrong to commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? You condemn idolatry, but do you use items stolen from pagan temples? You are so proud of knowing the law, but you dishonor God by breaking it. No wonder the scriptures say, the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you. The Jewish ceremony of circumcision has value only if you obey God's law. But if you don't obey God's law, you are no better off than an uncircumcised Gentile. And if the Gentiles obey God's law, won't God declare them to be his own people? In fact, uncircumcised Gentiles who keep God's law will condemn you Jews who are circumcised and possess God's law, but don't obey it. For you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God, and true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by the Spirit, and a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. This is the word of God to you today. You can be seated. Won't you help me thank Andrea for reading our scripture this morning? All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Man, it is so, so good to see your faces today and to be back in this place. If we are unfamiliar with each other, my name is Rodney, and I'm excited to share God's word with all of you today. My wife Jacqueline and I are so, so grateful to all of you for the love and support and the prayers that you all have shown and lifted up to God on our behalf. We are doing much better now than the last time you saw us. Uh, we've taken some time to rest and get our health in order. Amen. Amen. And we are truly, truly thankful um, to you all and to God for that. Well, hey, if you're new or newer here to New City, we're grateful that you're here. We've been in a series called Pure Gospel, where we've been walking through the book of Romans. And if you've been here, I know this series has been a blessing to you thus far. We have some amazing, amazing communicators here at New City. I just want to take a moment to shout out my brothers, uh, Pastor Gabe and Pastor Chris, uh, for the opportunity to come back and just to be um, with all of you. Can you help me give our leadership... A round of applause. Amen. Well, today, as we continue with our study, we'll, we'll wrap up Romans chapter number two. But before we do that, let's take a moment and let's pray together. Father in heaven, you are a good, good father. You are loving, you are kind, you are just. And this moment is another demonstration of that. So we pray that since you are the authority in this space, that you would arrest our attention to drive anything out of this atmosphere that would dare impede or hinder the flow of your spirit. Move in this place, God, according to your will, and we'll be so mindful to give your name the praise, the honor, and the glory. For truly, 
you are a good, good father. In Jesus' name, God's children said amen. Amen. And amen. To to start our time together, I want to start by talking about the worship of goodness. The worship of goodness. Now, to do that, I want to share a story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter number 18, verses 9 through 14. And I want to read it as we jump off this morning for your hearing. The story goes as follows. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. And I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, oh, God, be merciful to me for I am a sinner. Then Jesus says, I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Again, that's Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. There is a danger that can happen to us in our goodness, in our moralism, or in our religiosity. One is that we can find our self-worth in these things. And then the second is pride creeps in. I'm better. You're worse. I'm right. You're wrong. Not only, friends, is there a danger of goodness, but there's a worship of goodness. Think about the Pharisee we just read. Who was he worshiping? What was he worshiping? He was praying to God, yet he was worshiping himself. See, many of the Jews and the religious leaders of that time, they found their savior in their rule keeping. They worshiped their goodness because they believed that their goodness will save them. I love what Charles Spurgeon wrote. He said, the greatest enemy to human souls is a self-righteous spirit, which makes men look to themselves for salvation. Tim Keller said, reliance on God's rules is as much self-reliance and God rejection as ignoring God's rules. We live in a society and a culture of goodness, don't we? I mean, after all, this is the Bible Belt, right? Most of the people that we know would say that they're religious or morally good. For, for most of us, it's not It's not hard to imagine that many of us go home and at the end of the day we have this mentality whereby we feel like we are a good person. We think things like, after all, I haven't done the same things that some of these other people do. But Matthew 19 reminds us that there is not one truly good but who? God. Since God is the only one who is truly good, no human being can truly claim goodness apart from God. The truth is, friends, that when we think we're good, we're less grateful for God's grace. And so Paul is setting the stage here in Romans for the beauty of the gospel. After all, in order to know how good the good news is, we have to know how bad the bad news is. So Paul begins by talking about the bad news of brokenness. If you didn't know, you're broken, I'm broken, 
The people that you love are broken. So in Genesis 1, verses 18 through 32, he talks about the bad news of brokenness to the Gentiles. Then in, in Romans chapter 2, through chapter 3, verse 8, where we're going to be today, he talks about the bad news of brokenness to the Jews. And then in chapter 3, he talks about the bad news of brokenness to everybody. And so here in chapter number 2, as Paul is communicating with the Jews, he wants them to know that self-righteous religion is as much of a rejection of God as self-centered religion. Because both, both miss God and stand in the path of God's righteous judgment. In other words, neither will save them. Neither will save us. Religious people need the gospel just as much as irreligious people. Because we all have what Paul refers to in Romans chapter 2, verse 16, as a secret life. Which, by the way, God will judge. The point is that we all need God's grace. We all need God's grace. And so today, in today's lesson, Paul, while he is talking to the Jews, he's also describing a particular person, or better yet, a posture. A posture that is haphazard, a posture that is assumptive, one that is prideful and irresponsible. Remember, he's talking to religious people. Church folk. People who have made idols out of their nationality, the law, and their knowledge of it. All good things that were never meant to be the ultimate thing. So as Paul is talking to the Jews here, he's emphasizing what the law and all these things they hold so dear cannot do. He's attacking their religious legalism. And in so doing, Paul gets to the heart of the matter. So as we dive in, the first thing I want to show you here is that Paul calls out the Jews. He's calling out the religious people in verses 17 through 24. Now here, Paul is rebuking them for their inconsistency. He's rebuking them for their inconsistency. He's bringing this stuff up to highlight their haughtiness and their hypocrisy. In other words, he's highlighting the bad news of their brokenness. Now, the first thing I want to show you that he calls out is he calls out their pride. Paul calls out their pride. He says in verse 17, he says to them, he says, you call yourself a Jew. You. You call yourself a Jew. Now, the name Jew originally referred to a person from the region occupied by the descendants of Judah. But it was applied generally to all the people of Israel after the exile. They were distinct from all the other nations because God had chosen them to be his own people. The name suggested special status. So he's calling them out on this. He said, you, you call yourself a Jew. Then he said that the Jews were relying on God's law. They're relying on God's law. In other words, the Jews were proud that God had entrusted them with the Torah, the law of Moses, the word of God. They were proud of that. They relied on the law to deliver them from judgment, which it could not. And so Paul is calling them out. He says, you boast in your special relationship with him. Now, I want you to hear this clearly. There's nothing wrong with boasting in God. In fact, Paul did it. If you remember 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 31, he said, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. His point while he's addressing the Jews is that your relationship with God should not make you feel superior to other people. In fact, it should do the opposite. It should produce humility. 
But then he says to them, he says, you know what he wants. Some version says, you know his will. So you know what, God's want, what God wants. And they did. Through the scriptures, they knew it. And they could live it out. And because they did, they were able to see all the wrong choices that everybody around them was making. Because they knew the law. Again, this made them feel like they were better than everybody else around them. Paul also said to them, he said, you know what's right because you've been taught the law. Now, not only did they have the law, friends, they could quote it. They could cross-reference reference it. All the things, all of us know people that know the Bible like that, right? We can quote it, cross-reference it, any kind of scripture. They know it. They memorized it. This was who these people were. This was who they were, which in their eyes made them superior to the ignorant Gentiles. And so Paul is calling them out on this. Paul is calling them out in their pride. You ever had somebody call you out in your pride? Did that ever happen to you? Have you ever called somebody out in their pride? Here's the thing that we miss about pride. Pride is more dangerous than I think many of us realize. It's more dangerous than we realize. It's ultimately, if you remember, what got Satan and a third of the angels cast out of heaven, isn't it? Pride is a dangerous thing. Pride likes to hide in justification and in different emotions, doesn't it? Let me remind you of this. Kingdom assignments have been abandoned. Families have been disjointed. Blessings have been forfeited. Relationships have been destroyed all because of pride. See, pride isolates us and it limits our vision. It keeps us from seeing the bigger picture and from trusting God for what we can't see. That's what pride does. See, the Jews were blinded by their pride. The Jews were blinded by their pride to the point where they couldn't see that it was keeping them disconnected from the God that they claim to serve. The truth is that pride is always clearly visible to the Holy Spirit. Pride is always clearly visible to the Holy Spirit through those who have hearts that are bent towards God. And so though Paul, what he is doing here, it may seem a bit harsh, it was actually a very loving thing. So Paul calls them out on their pride. The second thing he calls them out on is their perception, their perception of, of themselves. He said, you are convinced that you are a guide to the blind and a light for the people who are lost in darkness. Now, that was supposed to be a part of the Jewish mission. That was supposed to be a part of their mission, to be a light amongst the nations. Isaiah prophesied about that. That was supposed to be their mission. The word was to be a beacon of justice in an unjust world. In other words, Israel was supposed to show the world what God was like. But they couldn't because they were too busy judging the world. That's why they couldn't show the world. And some of us, if we're honest, we have that same issue. Too busy judging people around us. Paul said, you think you can instruct the ignorant and teach children the ways of God. He said, for you are certain God's law gives you complete knowledge and truth. What he's saying to them is, is while they indeed had God's law, their problem was that they needed a new heart. That was their problem. They needed a new heart. Because there's a difference between being deeply religious and being a disciple of Christ. And this is what Paul is trying to show them. This is part of the reason, friends, why we need to walk with God in community with other believers. Because again, if we're honest, there are times and seasons in life where our perception of ourselves may be off. For those of us who are old enough to remember tape recorders, who remembers when we had tape recorders, right? 
Well, if you ever recorded yourself and you heard yourself for the first time, what'd you say? That don't sound like me. Yes, you did. That's what you said. Because for the first time, you heard what other people hear when they listen to you. That's what you heard. You heard what other people hear. And so sometimes our perception of ourselves is off, or sometimes our perception of God is off. Trauma, discouragement, dysfunction. The enemy uses those things to disorient us, not only in our story, but in God's story, so that we no longer see God as loving and faithful. But the truth is, friends, that even when we think he's forgotten about us or doesn't love us or isn't concerned about what we're going through, Nothing could be further from the truth. And community helps to right set and reorient us to the truth of the gospel. It helps to set our perception right. There was a song out years ago that said, that's what friends are for. What Paul is doing to the Jews here is he's trying to be a good friend to them. And my suggestion to you is that if you don't have a friend or a family member that will call you out in your pride, maybe you need a new set of friends. Friends that will challenge your pride and your presumption, your, your perceptions when they're off. So this is what Paul is doing. He's calling out their pride. He's calling out their perception. Then Paul begins to ask them questions to further expose where they are. Paul is coming for these folks. He's coming for them. And in doing so, he begins to call out their practice in verses 21 through 24. He's calling out their practice, or should I say, the fact that they don't practice what they preach. He's calling them out on this. He's exposing the contradiction between their claims and their conduct. Because, see, the Jews justified themselves to God by their behavior. And Paul was essentially saying to them, how's that working out for you? How's that working out? The truth is that their justification actually was a rejection of the gift that God had given them, the law. Justification was a rejection of the very thing that God meant to bless them. So he starts off by saying, if you teach others, why don't you teach yourself? If you teach other people, why are you not teaching yourself? The implication is that their lifestyle was an, was an indication that they didn't sit under their own teaching. They didn't sit under their own teaching. You ever had somebody tell you something that you know they weren't doing it themselves? What did you do? Mm, yeah, okay. This is what Paul is doing for them. Then he mentions stealing, adultery, and idolatry. Now, did all of the Jews do all of these things? Of course not. They didn't do all of these things, but, but all the things he named were all examples of breaking the law. His point here is that they were all guilty before God. They were all guilty. They hadn't kept the law. They hadn't kept it. That's why in verse 23 he says, you're so proud of knowing the law. You're so proud, but you dishonor God by breaking it. And then in verse 24, which, by the way, to me is the proverbial icing on top of the cake. It is the cherry on top of the milkshake. Paul substantiates his position with Scripture in verse 24 when he says, No wonder the Scriptures say the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you. This statement is a combination between Isaiah 52 and Ezekiel 30, uh, 36. Both, in both of those texts, God's name was dishonored because the people had not been faithful. 
particularly as they lived among unbelieving nations. And so what Paul says to them here is a powerful reminder of the power of our witness. And it is perhaps the, the, perhaps the most tragic result of the Jews or any of us that call ourselves Christ followers dishonoring God. It is a horrible witness to the world. Friends, it is a terrible thing when the hypocrisy of the saved keeps the gospel from getting to the lost. That's why Paul is foot stomping this here. What we often take for granted is that in moments of temptation and moments of adversity, our influence and God's name is at stake. Our neighbors, our co-workers, our family, our friends who desperately want something or someone to believe or hope in, they're watching us. So the question I think we all need to wrestle with is who's blaspheming the name of God because of you? Who's not coming to church because of you? Is it your spouse? Who's not growing in their relationship with God because of you? Is it your children? Is it the people you work with? The question is not meant to condemn, but to convict. It's an important question for you and I to wrestle with as children of God. Who's blaspheming God because of you? Here's the truth, friends. You and I were created, called, and commissioned to be a witness for Christ. Take my word for it. Acts 1, verse 8 says, but you will, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Who remembers the group DC Talk years ago? For those of you who aren't familiar, they were a Christian group that was out in the 90s, and they had a song called, What If I Stumble? Now, at the start of the song, there's a quote from an author named Brennan Manning. This is what it says. It says, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. This is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Credibility or influence with people is often built slowly but lost quickly. What honors God and attracts people to his gospel is not perfect people. It's not our perfection. Rather, it's imperfect people who have fully embraced God's perfect love. Make no mistake, Paul is calling out their pride. He's calling out their perception. He's doing this. He's calling out their practice all because he loves them. More importantly, he loves God. He wants to see God represented well by his people. But Paul is not done. After he calls these things out, he begins to clarify authentic conversion. He clarifies authentic conversion, and he uses something that is precious to the Gentile, to the Jews rather, to do it: circumcision. Circumcision. Now, if you don't know what circumcision is, I can't talk about that right now. And Google it, figure it out. But he uses this because it's precious to the Jew. The Jew believed that his circumcision guaranteed his salvation. 
And so Paul is saying to them, if you are a lawbreaker, which he clarified that they all are, if you are a lawbreaker, then your circumcision has become uncircumcision. This is what he's saying. The Jews' external circumcision was supposed to be matched by a circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. In other words, to be outwardly circumcised with no inward transformation was useless. True Jewishness and genuine circumcision are not ethnic or physical matters. This is what Paul is trying to drive home. They're not ethnic or physical matters. They are matters of the heart. They are the work of the Holy Spirit. Because one could be a Jew ethnically, but not one spiritually. This is what he's trying to tell them. What mattered most was not their possession of the law, the things that they held so dear. Nor was it the external act of circumcision, but obedience that springs forth from faith. This is Paul's point here. True salvation is a matter of the heart. I love what Dr. Tony Evans said. He said, external religion can never replace authentic relationship. External, external religion can never replace authentic relationship. Because here's the thing, friends. You can have Christian friends but not be Christian. You could be baptized and attend church regularly and still be unregenerate. You could be a seminary student and not be converted. You can be busy with all kinds of Christian activities but still be dead in your trespasses. Being a Christian isn't about becoming a nicer person or a more religious person. This is what Paul is trying to say. That's not what it's about. And at the end of our text here, Paul begins to address what it is that truly unifies us. And his point is that it's not tradition. It's not religion. It's not ethnicity, it's not race, it's not economic status, it's not rules, and it's not even the law. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ written on the hearts of God's people and lived out to the glory of his name. Our bottom line today, and this is Paul's point, is that the only way is the way of the heart. You want to be right before God? Surrender the thing that you hold most dear your heart, your way of thinking, what you think is best, what you think is right. Paul is trying to get them to surrender that thing, that precious thing, up to God. Because, friends, the things that we hold so dear, they're not getting us closer to God. Sure, coming to church is important. Being among community is important. Reading the scriptures, it's important. But all of those things are designed to soften our heart so that our heart becomes more like his. That's the point. And so as I begin to transition and close here, maybe, maybe the reason that many of us have trouble with this is because though the bad news is really, really bad, though it's really bad, we are sinful, we are broken, and that's really, really bad news. But maybe we struggle because though it's bad, it's familiar. Though it's bad, it's what we know. And to a degree, if we're honest, we're comfortable with it. It's bad, but we're comfortable. What Paul is trying to show the Jews, 
And what I think God wants us to know is that it provides a false sense of safety and security for us. And it leads us further and further from God. Pastor Gabe talked about those two roads last week. God is showing us that there's another option. And that is when you and I fully embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. So by way of application, I'm going to ask that this week that we pray for two things. For two things. The first is youthful curiosity. Youthful curiosity. One of the things we get tired of is when, when our children ask us question after question after question after question. Right? Remember when you first gave your heart and your life to Christ? Remember, remember the curiosity you had for Christ then? Some of us need that back. I believe that the catalyst for change is curiosity. The way we get from where we are to where we need to be is through curiosity. See, many of us are curious about what God has or what God can do, but not about who he is. Not about what he wants for us. Imagine if you would, somebody loving on you lavishly. Let's say they paid your, they paid your mortgage. They paid your rent. They paid your doctor bills. They paid your student loans. Hello, somebody. They gave you food. They put clothes on your back. Wouldn't you want to know? Wouldn't you want to know all you could about them? Wouldn't you want to know who they were? Wouldn't you want to know what their motives were for loving you? Friends, the gospel. This, this is an invitation from God for you and I to get to know him. Even though things are really bad, he loved us enough to invite us into something better. Something that says, I don't care about what you've done. I don't care about who you were with. I don't even care about how you feel about yourself. If we should be curious about anything, should be about that. Second thing I want you to pray for this week is courageous obedience. Courageous obedience. John chapter 2 records the miracle of Jesus turning water into wine. And just before he performed the miracle, his mother turns to the servants and says, whatever he tells you to do, whatever he tells you to do, Friends, that should be our posture. Whatever he tells you to do. Jacqueline and I are living that right now. We didn't want to leave.
And sometimes the transition, the transition is still hard. But we're learning. You just got to put one foot in front of the other. Because what God has is far better, far greater than anything we could ever imagine. And moving from what's comfortable and convenient means trusting the one who loves you more than anything. It means trusting that his way is perfect and so is his love. And all his plans for us, all the plans that he has for you are ultimately for your good and not for your harm. And friends, what we'll find out as we do is that God is in fact loving. He is in fact faithful. He is in fact a good, good father. And as we do, our hearts will be open to fully receive and embrace the invitation of the gospel. We'll have a posture like the tax collector in the beginning. God, I'm a sinner. Be merciful on me. That's all Paul wants. That's all God wants. It's hearts that are after his. Our study of the book of Romans continues next week. In the meantime, let's try to give up this thing that we hold so dear. That God might be glorified. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you're so worthy. You're so good. You're so mighty. And so we're grateful for the people that you bring into our lives, God, that call out our pride, that call out our perception, that call out our practice. Because, God, if we are truly honest in this place today, we've held on to things more than we've held on to you. So, God, today is an opportunity for us to take a step towards you. We pray for youthful curiosity. We pray for courageous obedience, God. And we pray that as we move and take steps towards you, that you would do the work in our hearts that only you could do. Because you are a good, good father. And so we pray, God, that as we learn to abandon the things that are com convenient and comfortable, the things that are scary for us to let go, even though they're not serving us well, we pray that you'll show us that your grace and your love bounds towards us. Thank you that eyes have not seen and ears have not heard all of the wonderful and beautiful things that you have in store for your children. So we thank you, Father. We praise you and we honor you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.